Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First one up is MM. But before we start with MM, I should mention the uh, a note about the L section of Slackware. The sections, the, the sets, the software sets, are named, from what I understand, after the floppy disks, yeah, the floppy disks, that the software used to come on. It used to be a set of like, I don't know, 30 floppies or something, and, and you, would, you would download all the information in the A set and distribute that to floppy disks, and then the AAA set, and then the, what would be next? I I don't, I I don't actually even remember all the sets, even though it's like right in front of me. Uh, A, AAA, no, AP, D, E, and so on. F for FAQ, K for K, uh, for, what's K for? K for kernel, KDE for KDE. Some of these were around at the very start. Some of them are are new. So the the sets have slightly changed over the the decades. But that was the idea. And I don't know why they have such terse naming conventions. I'm not sure. But the L section, the L set, were libraries. Or better said in a better way, I guess, things that go into the lib directory or a lib directory because it could be use slash user slash lib. It could be slash lib, whatever. If it's if it's a if it goes into the lib directory, then it gets put into the L set of software. There might be things in the directory of lib that, that don't get put in the L because it's required for something else, but this is all the, the extra, all the libraries that Pat Volterding decided to include with Slackware. Some of these packages in the L set start with the string lib because the packages themselves were named lib something, lib event, lib edit, lib dvd read, lib whatever. But others are distributed without that as part of their name. A spell, babel, uh, dot conf, dvd, uh, dvd what? dv, I just had it on screen. Oh well, dvd something, dvd author maybe? Uh, glade. All these things happen to go into the user lib directory, or at least parts of that package do, but the author of the software just didn't happen to name the thing that they are distributing lib uh, mm. They just called it mm. And so it still gets put into the L software series. It just, the naming convention just doesn't feel like a lib, even though it actually is. And mm, I guess, is a pretty good example of that. So if I go to var log packages, oops, packages slash mm dash 1.4.2, I see that there's a bunch of stuff. Well, there's one stuff, one stuff, one command in user bin, so that's not in lib. There's some stuff in user doc, so that's not in lib. There's, of course, a header file in user include. That's pretty standard for library stuff. And then here it is, slash usr slash lib64 slash lib mm dot a and libmm.so.14.0.2. 
0.22. And then there's some uh, files in user man as well. So not everything in the package is lib, not everything in it, the package, is the package itself is not named libmm, and yet the package contains a file called libmm.so, and, and so that's why it gets put into the L software set. Just wanted to clarify why I kept saying we we're in the L section, even though we're clearly in the M section. We're in the L software set. Okay, uh, so mm, which provides libmm, but the mm package is a, a two-layer abstraction library that simplifies shared memory between forked processes. So this is like malloc, the memory allocation function, but it's it's fine-tuned for shared uh, shared memory. Um, when I, uh, yeah, between forked processes, which I, I don't know, but I'm imagining there's a subtlety there that malloc does either differently or doesn't provide at all. So mm um, does allocation and locking when dealing with shared memory segments, and then another uh, sort of layer of the API has a, or rather a layer of the, the library has a high-level malloc style API so that you can work with the data inside the shared memory segments. I've never used mm. Malloc I've used like once, and, and basically, well I mean technically I've used a lot more than that, but directly I've used it like maybe once. You, you essentially tell the computer with malloc, so again, I'm not, I've never used mm. Uh, directly anyway. Uh, but with malloc, and, and I'm assuming because it says malloc style API, I'm assuming it's relatively similar with mm, you tell the computer how much memory you need. And you do this in bytes, like you're, you're telling it, hey, I need a byte of memory so that I can store an integer. And it looks to the heap where all the empty memory is kept, finds an, em an empty address, and tells you, returns a pointer for you so that you can then talk to that location. You, you can store information in that uh, location. And later, when you're done with it, you can use, you can free that up in sort of a, a you know, self-guided garbage collection, you can free that up so that you can use it again later for different data or for, you know, some other process on your computer can use that memory for something else. It's one of the joys of programming in C that I love to avoid by not programming in C. Next up is Mozilla NSS. That stands for Network Service Security. This is the Mozilla implementation of um, certificate storage, really. So let's go to Mozilla-NSS-3.74. Let's look at some of the commands provided. There's certutl, there's cmsutl, there's crlutl, modutl, and so on. There's a couple of signature tools so that you can sign things. Uh, there's a bunch of header files in user include. And then finally down in lib64, user lib64, there are things like libnss3.so and a couple of variations uh, and, and, and iterations of, of the different tools provided by this, by this package. So I'm going to go to libnss and do an LDD. And as you can kind of guess, a lot of the uh, Mozilla 
packages use NSS, Thunderbird, Firefox, things like that. So does Falcon, F-A-L-K-O-N, which is a, a, a web browser. And then there's, uh, you know, other stuff like Aggregator and Akinati and obviously CertUtil, the the command shipping with libnss. Kdevelop uses it. Contact. Um, Nm. Where I just saw Nm Connection Editor for. Uh, oh, Nm CLI. So things that interact with a network, uh, as you can possibly probably imagine, um, very frequently are going to take advantage of 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 this of this package because this is an open source general use certificate manager. I think we've talked some about SSL probably and this is related because uh, with your browser there's there's a need to kind of track uh what what's recognized what what computer and what certificate is recognized and and you know sort of blessed as it were and i'm kind of using that very intentionally because i'm um a little a little ambivalent towards ssl i mean i i like the encryption part of ssl that's good uh in some cases not all cases not everything requires it to be honest but it is kind of useful and certainly just the assurance that you're going to the place that you think you're going is an important assurance like we we do need that i've warmed up to that more and more lately just because it's if if there's a binary choice of like would you rather have it or not have it then i guess yes we should have it that that's a yes we should have that and if we're going to have it then it may as well be the default in a modern computing world so i've warmed up to it a lot more than i used to um but i'm still a little cynical about sort of like this idea that a certificate means trust because it doesn't mean trust it just means familiarity it, it, it means that if i see a certificate that i have seen before then i know that i have been to the place that i have been before or that i am very very likely at the place that I have been before. And that doesn't really imply anything other than, yes, I've been here before. Which, in itself, is useful information, and that's why, like I said, I've warmed up to the the concept. So if you go to, like, if you're using Firefox, and and that's an open-source browser, so it's probably a a really good one to be using, to be honest. Um, I know there's Chromium as well, but if you're using Firefox, then I kind of know off the top of my head. You can go to Edit, Settings, um, or just, you know, the hamburger menu, and what is it? Just Settings, right? Yeah. Um, And then Privacy and Security, and scroll down to the place that says, I think, yeah, Certificates. And then you can view Certificates. And, and this is your this is your NSS store, uh, unless I'm mistaken. But I'm pretty sure that's your NSS store within Firefox. I don't know what el- where where else that would be, because this is the big list of all of your uh, of all of the certificates that your browser is familiar with. Th- th- these are the certificate authorities that your browser has kind of signed up to essentially take at their word. Now you can add your own certificates if you ever needed to for for whatever reason. Uh, I don't think individual users usually do have a reason for this, but if you know a, a big a big organization uh, sometimes very much has a reason to do that because they don't necessarily need or want to distribute their certificate to the world, but 
they want their employees to know that they can get to these sites and trust that those sites are valid sites. So that's that's a thing that happens. Like in government, you'll see that sometimes, uh, and probably other places. Um, well, lots of other places. Like big big corporations very frequently have their own certificates that don't make sense to get shipped with every browser in the world, but makes a hundred percent sense for everyone within that organization. You could do that if you wanted to. The modern equivalent of that, really, is uh, Let's Encrypt by EFF, or or spearheaded, I guess, by EFF. Uh, I, I forget who is behind Let's Encrypt now. Maybe it still is EFF. I have a, some other name sort of in my head, though. Um, so Let's Encrypt is free and quick and easy SSL certificate, cert, uh, an SSL cert uh, for your personal web server or for a, a business's web server if you if you prefer but it, it's it's an ssl cert and you can put that onto your server and register sort of you sort of make a claim for your for your spot for your little certificate and because that certificate is signed off by let's encrypt browsers recognize that you know they don't necessarily know who you are they don't know whether you're a trustworthy individual However, there's a certificate signed by you for th your server, and if you've been there, and, and it's got Let's Encrypt's stamp on it, so it, we're going to call it a valid SSL cert. And so we, we won't warn people that, that the site is unknown or untrusted or whatever, because as long as that SSL cert is up to date, then we're taking it we're, we're taking it as exactly what it is, which is a certificate that has been signed by a known organization and assigned to a specific server. When you go back there, if that certificate has changed, then your browser should be warning you about that. Or if that certificate has fallen out of date, your browser should warn you about that. But otherwise, it is simply taken for exactly what it is, which is an SSL cert, meaning that you can now start to share keys with it and encrypt your, your um, communication between your computer and that server. And, and you've got sort of an agreement with that server that that's how you're going to communicate. Mozilla NSS is the library and a tool set to help manage those certificates. Now there are some commands, as I said, when I was looking at the uh, the list, the package list, and those ha those allow you to do things through a terminal, uh, mostly that, for instance, Firefox already does. But I mean, let's say you're using NSS, lib NSS for your own application, then you wouldn't probably be using the same database as the one that Firefox keeps, for instance. So you might have an occasion to use this for yourself, I guess. Um, but for instance, certutil, c-e-r-t-util, uh, let's just do a dash h for help. Uh, then you see things like dash capital A to add a certificate to the database. Dash capital B, run a series of certutil commands from a batch file. Uh, and then a couple of other options, and then finally you get to the point where, well, and, and I mean, there's, you know, dash F, you can delete a key associated with a certificate in the database. You can do dash G to generate a new key pair. So there's, 
there's a lot of functionality here, but the one that the, the simple one is dash capital L to list all of the certificates in a database. Now this won't work yet because uh, we haven't defined the database, but cert util dash L cert util function failed sec error bad database. Yep, well that's true. I didn't define a database. So the database in in well the, it's not the database that it wants. It wants the database directory, and you can you can see that that's the case with cert util dash h when in the usage it says cert util command and then dash d database directory and then further options so in this case we're going to do a cert and then it defines a command basically as an option i don't know what what the difference is uh so dash capital l to list all certs and then uh, dash D for the database directory. And that, the, an easy one, an easy target for this, because it exists, is tilde slash dot Mozilla slash, well, Firefox slash, and then whatever your profile directory is. So that's some kind of random string. I don't know where it gets generated from. It never, I don't think it ever gets renamed. Like once you, if you ever, if you use profile manager in Firefox and name a profile, the, this directory doesn't get named. So anyway, it's a random string dot default. That's the default directory. So when you launch Firefox, this is where all that information goes to. And in your default um, if pro profile directory, there are some files like call, uh, like cert and some integer dot db. So that's your cert database. It, I believe for whatever reason, reason it seems to start at cert eight dot db. I do have a cert nine dot db and frankly, I don't know why. So I, I, I never noticed that I had to, but I do have two of them for some reason. Either way, this is the certificate directory, but you don't point it at the directory, or rather at the, the, the database. You you point it just to your profile directory. It's going to find the cert db f uh, and, and process that. So I'm just uh, I'm putting cert util dash l dash d and then the path to my profile directory, hit return, and you get just a, a list of all of all the all the certificates that you can otherwise see in the Firefox settings. So this is the same information. It's just um, it's just uh, being dumped into your into your terminal. Um, this might actually have more information. I didn't I, some a lot of these I don't recognize from. Oh, but you know what? I think it is. Let's see. Edit settings. I think this might be just organized. Yeah, I think this is just organized differently. So if I go to view, um, view, there we go. Authorities servers. There we go. Yeah. So this is giving you the servers, the authorities, and the people probably. Yeah. So this is giving you all of the information that are otherwise placed into a bunch of other tabs in Firefox, I th I am imagining. There's one I'm seeing in my list that I don't see within Firefox. I mean, it's one I recognize, but I can't find where it would be. I wonder if it's not, I don't know. I don't know where that one is. Or, I mean, why that one's not in the Firefox list. Maybe I'm just missing it, too. Well, whatever. Um, point is, and maybe that's an argument to use the terminal one. Uh, you get, like, a lot of information that way. Um, but you get things like VeriSign. That's pretty familiar. Here's the Let's, Let's Encrypt Authority X1, GeoTrust SSLCA, Intrust Certification Authority 
Oracle, GeoTrust, RapidSSL, VeriSign Class 3, Thought, Startcom, just on and on. It goes on and on like that. Bunch of def- different certificates that your system is keeping track of for some reason, probably because you've gone there and it has detected the certificate and and recorded it on your system, sort of a known host file. Um, or some of these, of course, just got shipped with the browser because they're very popular, um, they're very common, whatever. So they get shipped because you're you know you're going to end up going to um, uh, something with a thought certificate or something with a Verizon certificate and so on, or VeriSign or Google or Cloudflare. You know all these. Uh, a lot of those probably just got shipped with the browser. So that's NSS. Uh, that's that's what the NSS subsystem does, and lib at NSS provides both the library for your browser to to get all that done just programmatically as well as commands so that you can potentially mess around with that stuff yourself. I wouldn't mess around with the database in your browser profile. I think that could be a recipe for really screwing some certificates up. So I wouldn't do that, but you could certainly create a copy of that database and mess around with it, or you could just create your own database. You could generate key pairs yourself, whatever. There are use cases where you're inserting certificates into a a browser's database. Like if you're setting up computers at an organization and you know that your organization has this set of certificates that, that all the all the computers at your organization needs to know about it might be the easiest way to just automate all the new images get this thing or set up an ansible script all, all computers are expected to have this certificate set in its cert database and if it is not there then add it through certutil or something okay that's it next up is mozilla's javascript engine which is mozjs78 so spider monkey is mozilla's javascript engine written in c and c++ not a whole lot to say about this i mean something's got to run javascript within the browser and spider monkey is the apparently the way mozilla chooses to do that you don't need to run firefox in order to run js78 or spider monkey apparently um you can just you can just launch the thing from your terminal so if you go to uh, your terminal js78 enter uh, then you're at a javascript prompt js uh, greater than sign and you can do things like print parentheses quote hello world close quote close parentheses semicolon and it prints hello world and and you could do a lot more than that obviously to get out of that prompt you can type quit parentheses parentheses or probably a control d as well that's the javascript engine let's talk about mpfr now this is a multi multiple floating point multiple precision mp FR, Floating Point Re- uh, Reliable Library, MPFR. So it's multi-precision MP, and then floating-point, just the F, floating point, and then reliability R, MPFR. That's a weird way to do that. But it, it this is uh, math stuff that, as you may know from previous episodes, I don't really understand all that well. But there is sample code 
on the website so you can you can experience it for yourself and it's not the worst we haven't done this in a while so let's do let's do the sample really quick so it's hash include standard io stdio.h uh, hash include gmp.h hash include mpfr H. So that's the header file that gives us all of these these functions, these multiple precision floating point uh, functions. So int main void, or rather int main parentheses void close parentheses curly brace unsigned int i semicolon mpfr. This is our first one underscore t and then s comma t comma u comma that declares three point uh, floating point variables w one is s one is t and one is u i guess before we even continue down this path it's important to define what the heck a floating point is so it's i think it's one of the things where it's almost easier to understand it if you imagine what a floating point number is not or a floating point system would not be so let's say on a computer uh, pre 1985ish or so uh, you had a a rule that a, a number is is eight digits because nobody will ever need more than eight digits right i'm not saying by the way that this was computing before 1985 i'm just saying in 1985 floating point uh system was uh made official by the ieee for computing so i'm just so let's just say this is before that and there's a computer system out there that says okay you got eight decimal points or rather you have you have eight in, uh, digits for your integers like that's you, you'll never need more than that that's those are, that would be a huge number that's plenty for everyone so okay great uh but we need a decimal point uh where are you gonna put the decimal point well um you could put it like at you know between digit uh seven and eight maybe no that's silly because then you'd only have one decimal point uh well okay let's move it over one to the left so now you have two spaces for decimal points because i mean money is what we're is what we deal with a lot of times on computers you, there's only going to ever be two digits of cents before you tick over to the next dollar that'll be fine right now nah, we probably need a little bit more flexibility than that okay fine we'll split the difference we'll do four digits on the left side of the decimal point we'll do four digits on the right side and now you have that's your number those are your integers that's what that's what you can do well th and that would probably work for like a lot of stuff until you realize wait a minute that only gives me nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine point nine 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 as my maximum number that doesn't make any sense you can get around that with more math, I guess, and just say, okay, well, every time I want to represent um, 10,000, I'll just say that that value is 9999.0000 plus one. And then I'll, I'll know that that I won't do that that addition. I will just create that offset. But this is all obviously weird workarounds. And so what what they figured out how to do was to make a floating point. The decimal could float around, and you could just tell your computer where you want that decimal to be considered for this specific number. So now suddenly you've got you can have a um, you can have a number like ten one zero 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 ten thousand dot zero 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 you could have ten thousand dot zero zero one you could have dot 
zero 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 one zero one zero zero you could have three dot one four one five and so on so so you can have really really big numbers with no decimals uh, with no no des no no what what are they called decimals nothing on the right hand side of the decimal point uh or you could have a really tiny number like a really really dot zero 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 one whatever uh number and and the 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 significance of that decimal point is now important by its position. And that's, that's why they call it a floating point, because the decimal can float around the number. But of course, I mean, in order to do that, you need you need notation and standardization so that everyone knows, well, this number looks really, really big, but wait, you need to know where the decimal goes, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's that's what's happening. That, that's why floating point is important. So we've just defined three floating point numbers, s, t, and u, or rather variables, s, t, and u. And we've done that because we've used the MPFR library. It gets pretty cool, actually, if, if you like big numbers. And who doesn't, right? MPFR underscore init to parentheses t comma 200 parentheses semicolon. That in, uh, initiates, or initializes rather, uh, the variable t, not to 200, but it, initi it initializes the variable t such that it has a 200-bit precision. If you like big numbers, that's a, that's going to be a big number. Uh, then mpfr underscore set underscore d, which does not stand for setting the decimal. That was my guess when I first read that line, but actually what this does, that line or that function, sets a value to a, a double precision number. And and then there's a, an additional function to round it toward minus infinity. So mpfr underscore set underscore d parentheses t comma 1.0 comma mpfr underscore rnd d close parentheses semicolon so you do the same thing for s and for u and then you do with the same it's the same iteration init mpfr underscore init 2 s 200 mpfr set d and so on so you're doing that for for everything oh except u actually for u you just init to u 200 for i equals 1 i less than or equal to 100, i plus plus curly brace, mpfr underscore mul underscore ui parentheses t comma t comma i comma mpfr underscore rndu. And I mean, a lot of this is, is vaguely cryptic, but I mean, kind of, I, I'm assuming once you get used to it, it, it starts to make sense. And you do see the, you see it. You Once you know what it means, you can see it. So MPFR underscore MUL mole, that's multiply underscore UI unsigned integer. So you're multiplying T in place. So T comma T by I, which is an unsigned integer, uh, and then you are rounding it towards plus infinity, mpfr underscore rndu, up. You're rounding up instead of down. Uh, and then you do mpfr underscore set underscore d, parentheses u comma 1.0 mpfr underscore rndd, and then mpfr underscore div. So you can imagine that that's probably divide, and indeed it is, parentheses u, u, t, mpfr, underscore, r, n, d, d, so we're down again, mpfr, underscore, add, s, s, u, mpfr, underscore, r, n, d, d, so rounding down again, close curly brace, so we're out of that loop, 
printf sum is mpfr underscore out underscore string, or str rather, parentheses standard out, std out, comma 10, comma 0, comma s, comma mpfr rndd. This is the um, printing a value of your result for s in base 10. So standard out 10. That's the base 10 rather than, say, uh, base 2. Uh, rounded toward, because there's that R and DD, so you're rounding down toward minus infinity, where the third argument, 0, means that the number of printed digits is just automatically chosen for you. So again, it could be a long number. Um, and then put car, um, parentheses, quote, backslash n, so we're ending, we're doing an inline character, close quote, close parentheses, semicolon, mpfr, underscore clear s, and then you do a clear t, and then you do a clear u. So you're freeing up all that stuff. mpfr, underscore free, underscore cache, parentheses, parentheses, semicolon, return zero, semicolon, close, curly, brace. Save it and quit. Now, here's the tricky bit. Not not really that tricky, but I mean, GCC, and remember, uh, you need to tell GCC what to use to compile this thing, because if you just do GCC numbers.c, which is what I called the file, then you get a bunch of errors. User bin lit, uh, ld rather, says um, undefined reference to mpfr, set d, undefined reference to mpfr underscore init 2. So in other words, it doesn't know it doesn't know what MPFR is yet. So what you have to do is you do GCC dash lowercase l MPFR, no space, just dash l MPFR. That's weird notation for GCC. Never did really much care for it, but there you go. Dash l meaning pretend like this says lib MPFR space numbers dot c. That works. And then, of course, it just saved out as the default a dot out. So I'll do a dot slash a dot out. And the sum is 2.71.828. I mean, 2.71.828. Uh, and so on. It goes on for a long time. And that's that's floating point um, arithmetic enabled by MPFR. The, the documentation for this is really, really good. Uh, go to mpfr.org, multiple precision floating point reliable.org, mpfr.org. Excellent documentation. I'm talking about, like, I don't, I don't even know what this stuff is. Like, I don't even know... I don't know what I'm doing. This is this is math. I don't understand this stuff. I found this documentation startlingly clear. Like really good stuff. So if you're if you're at all curious about this or if you have no idea about it and are vaguely curious about it, really just go 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 read up about it. Go read their documentation. Look at the sample code which we've just done, but look at it again, read the FAQ. It's it's really, really interesting, actually. And you know what else is really, really interesting? Coffee. Let's go get a cup, and we'll come back finish up the show. Thank you. 
And I'm back. I'm still on my summertime coffee. Uh, I think I'm on like, I don't know, I think I got 200 gram bags or something like that. And I'm on my third one now. I think I have one more to go. And after that, I'm going to switch over to the, uh, the some, some really exciting coffee that I got at a, um, at a, at a, at a cafe out in, in central Otago near a cherry picking orchard. Very exciting. I'll tell you about it when, when I'm there. So now, for now, we are looking at the M section in the L software set. These are libraries. We just covered MPFR for multiple precision floating point reliable library. And now we're talking about incurses, which is new curses. It's a library of something called curses, which I don't know what that is. I mean, I, I know what all of this is, but I don't know what curses is. I don't know where that came from. I don't know. Is it a, is it like, is it a, like, where did it come from? Is it a DOS thing or is it, does it, does it, is it a Unix thing? Was it always a Linux thing? I don't know. In other words, I'm wondering about the in part. Like if it's a new curses, well, what was the old curses? What are we, are we emulating something? Are we re-implementing something? And if so, what? And I, I just don't know. I also don't care enough to sort of find out. Um, it says that the package was original was originally P curses written by Pavel Curtis in like 1982, but it doesn't say what it was written for or anything like that. Um, but this has a long and storied history. I just don't know what the story is. And that's purely because I didn't really pay attention to what was going on in computing until, you know, relatively recently uh, for me, I mean, compared to the rest of my life. Um, so P curses from context clues was available on Unix and DOS. So I'm I'm assuming that whatever whoever developed this, well Pavel uh, Curtis apparently did, but I guess it must have been multi-system. And what it was, now that I've established that I don't know where it comes from, but what it is is a way to draw graphics like think of them as 8-bit graphics on a screen that has no graphical output. So if you had a, a terminal, uh, just a text terminal, you could imagine, and, and you don't even have to imagine that much because, I mean, it's it's all over the internet, but you can imagine trying to create graphics in just text. I mean, heck, you can open up like you know, a text editor like Emacs or something or, or anything with sort of a monotype, not not that Emacs necessarily has monotype, but get a monotype font, a monospace font rather. And, you, you know, you can kind of draw a box, for instance, if you if you really try, not even that hard. Um, I just drew one here out of the, uh, the characters P, Q, B, and D. If you, if you just write down PQ and then on the next line BD, you have a box, sort of. I mean, if you squint. Uh, another way of doing that would be like maybe a plus sign and a dash and another plus sign. Next line, pipe, space, pipe. Next line, plus sign, dash, plus sign. Now you've got another box, sort of, if you look at it in a certain way. So that's one way of emulating graphics in a text uh, interface, right? But that wasn't quite enough for, I guess, Pavel Curtis. Um, somebody decided 
some people decided that what would be really nice is if you could just uh, enter, just kind of fill in the entire space where that where a letter should be. Just fill it in with a with one color, and then go to the next space and fill in another box, and then the next space and fill in another box, and so on. So you're essentially drawing on screen with like these kind of all pixels firing boxes and that's what incurses is if you've ever experienced the default debian installer last time i checked or certainly the slackware installer then you've seen incurses you have you've you've used it you have experienced it for yourself on slackware you can execute the command pkg tool and you get to see incurses. Uh, the cool thing about incurses is that it can draw the shapes. It can draw really rudimentary shapes like boxes and things like that. But it also can have, um, it has controls, various controls. Uh, for instance, you can, uh, th there are sort of regions of the screen that are highlighted to to suggest that it's a button, a button widget. And so you could go, you can use your arrow keys to get down to a certain selection in the menu and then use tab to tab either okay or cancel and hit return and you've just clicked the button and you are taken to the next selection in that screen that's that's kind of a gui interface except it's rendered in a terminal within curses this is commonly called a tui or a tui to a TUI, a, a terminal user interface, instead of a GUI, a graphical user interface. I, I don't know that that's like the official term, but I mean, that's, people definitely use the term TUI. So I guess it's as official as, as anything is when people are using it commonly. So if you want to do that yourself, if you want to create incurses interfaces, then you could use the incurses library uh, to make that happen. Let's talk about Neon. Neon is kind of kind of nice. It's kind of cool. So this is a WebDAV client for... Oh, wait. MN. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're in the N section now. I didn't even realize it. I forgot to announce that. Coffee. N section. Great. That's cool. Still in the library software set, but we have, we have progressed into the Ns, as in November, or as in Incurses and Neon. Neon. It's kind of cool. It's a WebDAV client library, and... And it's got a C language API and probably other languages as well. The the key feature here, I guess, is that it's an HTTP 1.1 and WebDAV client library, meaning that this is a relatively simple way if you're if you're programming and you need to interface with a web server or a WebDAV server, this library can help you do that in a pretty rudimentary way. And a lot of times that's all you need because you're just making a call out to that server. You're just doing an, a standard get or post uh, notification to HTTP, or you're sending authentication um, messages over to a WebDAV server and then pointing at a certain directory that you want to get something from or get a list of or whatever. This is really important. I mean, the HTTP thing is nice. I feel like it's kind of like, yeah, whatever, right? And HTTP, yeah. There's probably a dozen other libraries out there that do this. WebDAV can be tricky, though. I have had to deal with really, really poorly configured WebDAV. Uh, it's, it's it's shocking how, how WebDAV just lets people just do whatever they want, you know? And it, it's just, it's so bad. It, it, it kind of smacks 
of a design that, and I don't think it's the protocol, but the implementation of it that I've seen smacks of a of sort of the theory that no one would ever need to deal with this in any other way except the way that we've designed it. I, I'm speaking of Apple. I, I may as well not sort of try to obfuscate it. That's silly. I'm speaking of Apple. Apple has a bunch of web dev stuff that they've kind of invested heavily into and like services and and they will let their users name things, just whatever the users want to, kind of under the assumption that, well, no user is ever going to have to access this through any means other than this i application, this i iOS app or something like that. So no one will ever care about how messy the structure is or how how horrifically bad these naming the naming schemes are or whatever. Um, and and it shows. Like when you try to interface with these things, you you have like a designer somewhere with a Mac and they're like, oh, I need. My boss said I needed to share this directory with everyone. Well, I'll go and poke around in my system until I find something about file sharing. Here's a thing. Click. That's on. Okay, great. Now they're running a web dev server and it's running the entire, you know, that that's now the design department's shared directory on this one person's laptop that they take home every day, you know, like, and that's it. And, and where's all the stuff? Well, it's over here in this directory called, uh, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, like literally called something stupid like that. And it's like, you know, it's great that the users can do whatever they want and express themselves in that way and make their directories something really stupid. That's brilliant. I love it. And, you know, half of the users probably don't even care about the name anyway. They're just looking for the icon of the cat. And if they see the cat icon, then they know, ah, oh, that's where our fonts are kept. Let's call it something funny like slash slash or equal equal colon semicolon semicolon equal. You know, it's like, great. That's really cute and fun. But, I mean... For the person having to then, you know, I don't know, pull the backups or something like that, then then it's horrific. Or or copy the, the files from your shared directory so that we can then publish it on the company Git repository because we can't rely on just your laptop sharing these files and so on. So anyway, you know, a lot of this is coming from real life experience, as you may be able to tell. I'm, I have to be a little bit vague about the exact experience, but I can say that this sort of thing happens and it is frustrating. And the web, like some implementations just don't do anything to protect sort of the, 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 sort of the, the, the rationality of, of, of naming schemes or, or structure or anything like that. So web dev can be really tricky and you can, you can run into lots of weird problems, lots of weird configurations. And it's just great to have something that is relatively lightweight, a library where you can just use functions there to handle all the messy parts for you. You don't have to re-implement anything. You just encode it. You, you just, Include it in the application itself, and that's great. And that's Neon. NetPBM. This is an application to convert graphic files. I vaguely recognize the extension PBM. I know I've seen it before, or something like it. I might not have. Maybe I'm thinking of BMP. Whatever the case, I, I do. I am vaguely aware that there's a graphic format called PBM. It must have been sort of before, not like literally my time, but before the time of me really knowing what a file format was, um, because I, I have no memory of PBM, and I, I don't, I think it was phased out 
by the time I got to a point in computing where I understood that files were different structures of data and 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 so on. So there's PBM, there's PGM, there's PNM, there's PAM. I know nothing about these file formats and I don't care enough about them to research or to look so that I might find out more. I really don't. I honestly don't. So I'm not going to. And in fact, I am going to remove, I'm going to do a sudo remove pkg net pbm right now. But while it's doing that, I will say that it's a package with one library called uh, libnetpbm, and that library is linked to all of the different commands included in this package. And those those commands are, I'm just reading the output of remove pkg here, user bin bmp to ppm, gem to pbm, icon to pbm, pam rgb at O P N O G B A two P N G P B M two icon P C D index and so on and it just goes on like that for a hundred a hundred of a hundred lines. Um, it's it's a very a lot a lot of little commands. Uh, some are sim links to something else, but it, it's a lot of commands to deal with. Like I say. PAM, PBM, PGM, PNM, PPM, PRM, I just see that now, um, and I, I think probably a couple of other ones that I'm not thinking of. So, very useful if you probably, like, have maybe a system that specifically uses PBM files or something like that, or maybe you have legacy files from whenever these PBM things were uh, popular. These days, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm using Web, WebP. I mean, that's that's really what I'm using, honestly. But, I mean, you know, PNG, JPEG, that those things come up as well. But I, I just, I don't have a use for PBM myself. Not saying it's not a useful format. I just, I'm, I literally don't know anything about it. And, and because I've been using Linux since 2006, it, it's never come up. So I, I, I just don't, I don't care. I've given up on PBM without ever knowing it existed in the first place. And finally, within the in section, this is the last one of the ends, newt, N-E-W-T, and this stands for Mitch's windowing toolkit or something? Why would it be Mitch? Oh, not Eric's windowing toolkit. I don't know who Eric is, but this is not his windowing, windowing toolkit. This is like incurses. Heck, it might use incurses. I'm not sure. Probably not. Otherwise, why would it why would it exist? Uh, let's see, library 64, libnewt. No, it's using libnewt, but it is a lot like um, in curses. Uh, it's also a, a lot like um, Zenity, I think is what it's called, or the K-Dialog thing, except it, it draws in just, just terminal user interface. It's a lot of fun. So the the command um the the command uh, access or portal to this is whiptail. W H I P T A I L. Don't know why, don't know how you'll remember that. I guess do newts have whiptails or something? I'm not sure. Um but I think newt is like a lizard, right? That's that's what that is. Newt newt tail. Let's look at newt tails. Um well, they have tails. So anyway, uh whiptail is the is the command. And if you do whiptail dash, that's W-H-I-P-T-A-I-L dash H, you get a an idea of, of, of your op- different options. So for instance, there's a dash dash message box or M-S-G-B-O-X. So if you do whiptail dash dash message box and then quote 
hello world, close quote. And then we need to give it a, um, a height and a width. So we'll give it, let's say, a 20 by, let's say, 60. And then my terminal is, after I hit, hit return, my terminal's taken over by a blue screen with a white little, little white window in the middle with a little drop shadow under it. It says, hello world, and there's a button down at the bottom that is highlighted by default that says, okay. So I hit return and that screen goes away. There's other versions of this. There's yet, uh, dash dash yes no. And again, hello world 2060. Now I've got the same basic thing. I've got hello world and a little gray white window with a little drop shadow. And there are now two buttons at the bottom. One is yes, which is highlighted by default. And if I hit tab, it goes over to no. Hit return and it goes away. And, and there's all kinds of variations on that. Like there's input box. And you could say like, um, I don't know, uh, you know, enter your name and then 2060. And you can even add a initial value as well. So you could say um, whiptail input box into your name 2060 and then quote um, first name, close quote, return. And now I've got hit return, got the, the window again, uh, enter your name, first name, that's auto filled first name. I have to delete it to enter Clatu, uh, so that's not all that useful. But, you know, for some things that might be, like, if you have a default value that you expect the user to accept, that might work. So I'll hit tab for OK, or I could hit tab for cancel, but I'll, 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 I'll go back to OK and hit return. Now, the when I'm back in my terminal, I have the word Clatu appearing in my standard output. So you could use Whiptail to gather information from your user and then use it in a shell script and so on. So that's it's a fun thing to mess around with. Um, I hadn't really heard of it before. I've heard of similar tools, but I didn't know about Newt, or I did and had forgotten about it. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, that's kind of neat. It, it, it looks really good. Uh, it looks, and it's pretty easy to use, at least the, 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 the really obvious, you know, the command is Whiptail. Um, you, you could use the library itself, too, to, to do things from, a, from, a, from code rather than from, you know, a term, interactive terminal or, or a script. Um, but yeah, take a look at it. Newt. Zero. 0.52.1 and that takes us through the m's and the n's next episode or thereabouts we'll start on the o's of the l software set thanks for listening i'll talk to you next time Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
gone haywire.